Yeah. So Dr. Koontz, uh, I kind of wish we had what you just said a moment ago uh, <laughs> recorded. Unfortunately, the, I remember. So yeah, you can you can repeat it. Yeah. The the confluence of California, the West Coast, pagan merging merging with uh, Christianity and some sort of strange hyper reality that turned into what uh, communism in the church through church growth and uh, taking over the radio air, airwaves. Let's uh, let's rock and roll like it's nineteen ninety nine, but with Jesus at the center. What a world. I mean, who could have foreseen the, the shift in Christian dynamics that American evangelicalism through what we're going to talk about today, the Jesus people and its legacy influence. Um, you got to understand Pentecostalism as just kind of being this as well. Uh, what a thing to need to reckon with, I think, uh, as Christian Lutherans, we believe we're Orthodox. I think we are. Um, at what level can we engage the spirit of such things? At what level are we uh, resisting the spirit of God when we dismiss the spirit of such things without knowing the history of it? It's hard to know. We can certainly you know, go tit for tat with Bible verses, um, but anybody can. And, and so that's, that's the trick here is, you know, well, who are the Jesus people? Um, what does it mean that, so for example, in my life, the reason I really know about that phrase, I, aside from some Bob Dylan recollections, is that, uh, you know, about two years ago, I did start listening to a guy named Danny Goki, who is, um, I think he's kind of mellow Christian, you know, uh, what gospel, but he has a, uh, a Latino background. He sings in Spanish and English. His Spanish work is quite um, prolific. In fact, he has a huge, huge following there. He's got a big following uh, in the United States. And the, the reason I listen to him is not because I like his style. I mean, the guy can sing. He's got he's got that, that tenor voice that can go anywhere. Um, but what got me, honestly, was his appropriation of Reformation language into the songs. You know, what he's singing about, you know, by faith alone is hard. It's hard to dismiss it, even though I also know, and this is where I think we'll, we'll need to go the most today, Dr. Coons. I also know he probably is defining by faith alone and a breakthrough and things like that quite differently than I would with my Lutheran biblical perspective, right? I'm going to have a different yeah. limitation on certain things. So yeah, from there, go ahead and take it. So this is going to be largely a West Coast story, but it's the opposite end from the Pacific Northwest, which is probably the vanguard in American religious terms of growing explicit paganism, you know, like Norse paganism, Wicca, stuff like that. Southern California really, even down to the 1990s is generally, if you can, if people can accept this, a fairly conservative influence on America with the exception of Hollywood. Southern California, and this is a figure that bridges those two, cultures in the person of John Wayne, after whom the Orange County Airport is no longer named, is like Richard Nixon, who is a Southern California uh, native, a, a very conservative influence on American life. And this is not going to be conservative in the sense of what we're going to talk about today, conservative in the sense of uh, a conservative style but it will be conservative in the sense of promoting American evangelicalism and making it the dominant force in Protestant America. And for a lot of people's actual functional idea of what a Christian is who live in the United States, 
basically the definition of Christianity, whether you like yeah. it or not. So yeah. when you're you talking about being, be, right, being a Lutheran, being Roman Catholic, being whatever you are, that's that's fine. You have your convictions. You need to know where dominant forms of things actually came from so that you understand what you're talking about. And Southern California is the genesis of that. What replaces the gaps that we've talked about earlier in this series in the the receding of the main line. So if mainline Christianity is going away increasingly into the 60s, and certainly for most denominations, if they're doing well, they plateau in the 70s or they plateau in the 80s. Our denomination has plateaued for a while where we were in 1974 in membership, and now we're slowly declining. And then there's, you know, whatever debates for whatever reasons about who, you know, who actually is <laughs> is actually there on a Sunday and and where are those people and and are we gonna decline faster? Or are we gonna reach a floor on this decline? You know, that's in a way we're very mainline in that yes. sense. We're very yes. mainline in that sense. And it's not really different for the Roman Catholic Church. It's not terribly different for the Southern Baptist Convention. Can I interrupt on that then? Yeah. So what you're suggesting is that even though the Roman Catholic Church, say in Rockford, has a, I don't know, tenfold, twentyfold uh, footprint compared to Missouri Synod, that they're effectively in the same demographic spiral, and in 50 years, really doesn't matter. They still have the same collapse going on. Sort of like, and this is a case I've been making as I've gone different places and talked about the orders of creation, and I'm still going to be making it. Is that because the challenges that the church is facing generally don't have to do with predetermined denominational boundaries, but have to do with things that most denominations have not dealt with, or if they have, it was in a completely different context. So yeah, sure. Like fundamentalist Baptists dealt with <laughs> men's and women's roles really extensively, but they came down to the idea that like, if the woman is wearing, you know, a piece of cloth cut into two to, to form pants, you know, this is the way to damnation. So that was a different context that they came to that conclusion in because everybody's facing problems involving what Lutherans historically called the creator's orders or orders of creation is a more common term in English. Then it's not like this is going to break down along denominational lines. So it's not like, well, okay, you know, we'll, we'll go down, 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 but then suddenly we will somehow without coming to a resolution of you know, how are our families shaped and what do we do with our lives? We'll stop that decline, whereas somehow that decline will continue for the Presbyterian Church in America or, you know, faithful Roman Catholics or whatever, right? Because the challenge is general, the solution will either be replicated in many places or it won't exist. Because it's not it's not a question of, okay, because of your soteriology, you're going to have a solution, but because the Roman Catholic is wrong about the question of merit in Western theology. He won't, you know, that it's, this is an issue where we have been very poorly served by convincing ourselves that really the only topic in Christian theology is how you are saved. Yeah. And that both somehow distinguishes us from everybody else and is really the only topic of every sermon and it's the point of being a Lutheran. We're very poorly served by that. We would have been much better served to say, we believe in the Bible because we believe in the Bible. We believe in justification by faith alone. 
because we believe in the Bible, we believe that men and women are different in every aspect of life. We would have been much better served to start with our method, which is the way at which Luther arrived to his convictions about salvation, rather than focusing just on the topic and the conclusions arrived on that topic, and then leaving all of the other topics aside. Oh, man. You're making me think of my uh, my once upon a time love of, I'm going to lose his name, Religious Bodies in America. Um, F.E. F. E. Mayor, Meyer, or Meyer, Meyer, yeah, Meyer, yeah, Mayor. Um, you know, I, I really found the framework he built when I was in my early 20s to be like stunning. It was like, oh, look, he's diagnosed it all. And I remember someone saying once, uh, you know, while I was still at the seminary, how, yes, but it's dated and there there's more going on. And, you know, as I read, I'm like, yeah, but a lot of what's going on is is the same stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he does do this nice thing of, I think, uh, understanding formal principle, material principle, realities that there are, there's what you think you're doing, there's what you're doing, and they often are not the same. And if you look at what traditions of Christian theology have, you can find both of these at work, you know, push aside any arguments between Plato and Aristotle for a moment, and, and just let it be that the, you know, he diagnoses the material principle of Lutheranism as justification by grace through faith, and he diagnoses the formal principle as the Bible. <laughs> and and you're, what you're suggesting is we have perhaps overloaded our material principle as if the formal principle doesn't matter, or as if it isn't material because the formal pl- principle says so. Right? Uh, you can't you can't have the idea without the thing to call the Gnostic lie what it is. And that's where I don't know if you've heard me do this, Adam, but I am increasingly and going to. Uh, refer to our enemy as Gnosticism uh, when I'm not referring to it as the Antichrist. But Gnosticism in so many ways summarizes exactly what you're describing in the way that with an end around to all of our talk about these ideas of what the Bible says, we managed to lose the creation <laughs> in our actual practice. I mean, it's, it's really kind of impressive if you think of it, the, the devil's the devil's game here. Uh, that we, we have lost the ability to believe that we are animal creatures distinct from each other, not only man and woman, but like as individual people, because we've believed in some sort of secret theories that we can all hold to and it will make reality submit to us in some weird way. And as you, as you point out again and again, what's going on is our lack of repentance regarding this is leading to a confrontation with nature itself, which is making the whole world of man collapse because we, we can't lift up the Tower of Babel as much as we want to. Your point, I, formal, I think, formal principle, formal yeah, principle. Bible, I, go you know, back I, to it. I, I honestly have never liked that language because what I think it does is it re- it it clarifies, and it was meant to be introductory, but unfortunately, that's not how people use introductory things very often. People get introduced and then they stop, and the difficulty there is that the formal principle. If we're just talking about Lutheran history, and I don't, I, do, <laughs> I don't think Lutherans are as important as they think they are. So Amen. I, I'm with you. So I, so I do want to talk, I do want to talk about Fuller Seminary, but, but, I think that the formal principle of Lutheranism has been neglected. If we're going to use those terms, it's been neglected relative to the material principle, and that extends through a lot of things. It has to do also with. Lutherans being unable to see the fundamentalist modernist conflict as their own. Yeah. 
because by the time we went through it, and this is a common Lutheran thing, you should expect if you're Lutheran to be late for everything. We went through that conflict in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Most other denominations that socially or sociologically resemble us did that 40 to 50 to 60 years earlier. So, and 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 in the 60s, we actually, we published a book, Milton Rudnick examining whether we are fundamentalists. And he was like, well, no, we're not fundamentalists. Yeah. And he didn't talk really about the Bible. He, t- he talked mostly about he talked mostly about the sociological reality of Lutheranism, that Lutherans don't behave like fundamentalists. The difficulty there is that it it misdirected us about what is the actual challenge of being a Christian in modern times. And that challenge is generally to the authority of God's word and downstream from that, yeah. therefore, the life that God gives us, we would assert on the basis of that word, as well as the teachings that that word provides. So Lutherans generally only were aware of the one challenge, okay, which is the doctrine of scripture, and we're not aware of the other challenges entailed. So why then is it the case that, okay, here are the guys who reject the inerrancy of scripture. They don't think that Adam was a real person. They don't think that Jonah was swallowed by a giant fish, whatever, right? Look Look at what occurred. They have their own seminary as of, what, 75, 76? I don't know. Are they teaching in 74? Doesn't matter. They have very early on in the 1970s, not only female divinity students, they also have open homosexuals, okay? In the 70s, this is long before, long before anybody's going to legalize gay marriage anywhere. So... I think the connection here between rejection of God's authority and the shape of one's life, we missed it. We got the formal thing down on paper. We missed what the connections were. So that doesn't mean that we therefore embodied all the same connections that the opposing side did in that particular case immediately. But we find ourselves unable to respond to these things because it's like, well, Here's our formal principle, and our formal principle leads only to our material principle. Yeah, right. We find ourselves still trapped in a game of theories or Gnosticism. It's it's about we're st- we're having conferences so we can find the right answer, so we can think it's right, and then we'll be okay. Like the the distinction between uh, what the what the fundamentalist movement did was it saved practical Christianity as an active reality in people's lives across denominations as as a, as a spirit, yep. right. And it's hard for me at this point, this is my point bringing up Goki, is to say, well, that wasn't Jesus, because it sure looks like it from this end. And and there's a point at which, as Lutherans, it's like, we got, there's correctives. I'm not saying there are correctives. Yeah, yeah. And and the thing I always wonder with Lutherans talking about other Christians is, who died and made you the judge of the validity of everyone else's life? Like, no one cares. No one cares that you think that his profession of Christianity is illegitimate. That's fine. If it matters, why don't you tell him or write a book about why he's wrong or something? I mean, at least take the courtesy that John MacArthur took with Charismatics to write a book and put on multiple conferences about why they're wrong. If you actually cared, that's what you do. You wouldn't just tell your in-group that everyone else is wrong, right? That's that's not love. That's just whining. Right? Cynicism. Cynicism. Yeah, yeah. I think I think cynicism is a part of it. So what we're looking at is this connection between 
the use of the doctrine of scripture and the and the the actual profession of faith and of life that goes with that doctrine of scripture and as the doctrine of scripture declines with all of the other declines and changes so that now you know a hundred years later the same seminary that maybe is admitting some guy who's not real sure about the virgin birth or not real sure about the authority of scripture but he wants to be a minister in you know mid 1920s those seminaries either don't exist anymore or in them other religions are just openly proclaimed mm-hmm. right just okay so so this was something that sociologists and journalists were catching on to even in the 1970s that there was famously a book later in that decade called why conservative churches are growing I want to start with that book because it it captures inside of it one thing that they sort of understood then and one thing that I don't think they quite understood, but those two prongs really capture the two realities that are going to lead to the shape of the predominance today of non-denominational Christianity in the way that we're familiar with it. So there have always been churches that are not affiliated with denominations. There have been Lutheran churches that are not affiliated with denominations, okay? The, w- but we don't mean that when we say a non-denom church today. In our minds, that's that's a fairly large church, okay? It's much larger than the American average. So if the American average is something like 70 post-COVID, it was a little higher before COVID. If the American average is something post-COVID, something around 70 post-COVID and it's in some kind of denomination. A non-denom church is probably at least twice that size on a Sunday and is obviously not in a denomination of any kind. How did that happen? The two prongs here, and I'm going to take the, let's say, more popular strain of it, and then we'll talk about church growth theory after that. But the more popular strain of it originating in a combination of actors, but sort of centered on Southern California, but including Bill Bright at Campus Crusade for Christ, who I think by that time, he's from Southern California. I want to say by that time, he was already in Colorado Springs, as well as an event in 1972 called Explo 72, which was put on by a variety of people, most of whom were involved in some sort of campus ministry or youth ministry centered on Southern California. But Explo 72 takes place in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, and they invite Bill Bright, and they invite Billy Graham. And the idea was to get, and they eventually got about 80,000 people, 80,000 kids, basically, to have a sort of Christian counter to the hippie, hippie movement. That was that was always the idea, okay, is that you're going to fight fire with fire. And they identified the hippie movement as fundamentally pulling people away from Christianity, about which I don't think they were wrong. Like generally, if you pull people into being very disconnected from their families, maybe by distance, maybe just by politics, heavily into drug use, you're you're probably not going to produce a lot of you know solid practicing Christians out of such a milieu. So they say, okay, we are going to organize kids the way that the music industry organizes kids at Rolling Stones concerts, right? And so Explo 72 is a place that if you read anything about this, they're going to return to time and time and time again as this mixture of the old and the new. The old part was the message. So fundamentally, nothing really is changing here. You're going to get 
the same kind of preaching that you were getting in, say, 1946 at a bunch of little churches in the South or, you know, in Oklahoma or in Southern California. So doctrinally, they're not really trying to change anything. The thing that's really is new about this is that Expo 72 is one of the public debuts of something that would eventually be called Christian music, but was called at the time Jesus music. Because from the start, these kinds of events like this, more local manifestations of it, when kids would take on a sort of Christian version of the way that Hare Krishnas lived in the 60s and 70s, like traveling around, evangelizing randomly, street evangelism. There was a guy who would drag a giant cross up and down Skid Row in Los Angeles. Same idea is that they weren't going to fight every manifestation of hippie culture. They were going to appropriate and Christianize it. And I think most importantly for everyone else afterward, they were going to do that with rock and roll. That was new. And because they did that, and because this began to take off with performers like Larry Norman, because they did that, from that time forward, you've got, you've got all kinds of people who really previously had low connection to the church but who are pulled in by forms of church that are relatively new. And probably the two biggest or best known examples of this would be, on the one hand, the Calvary Chapel movement with Chuck Smith, who still teaches probably on any radio that any listener of this has access to. You can hear Chuck Smith's voice every day on some Christian station, even though he's he's been gone for, for years now. Teaching through the Bible verse by verse. I mean, the, the man fundamentally changed what everyone thinks the word expository means. It's an old word in Christian preaching, and he changed it by making that popular. And then Calvary chapels are exported under that name everywhere throughout the United States. As a side note, it's my favorite (laughs) (laughs) non-denomination. Right. It is not, right? It (laughs) It is not at all a denomination, but but it is, right? Yeah, (laughs) it is. It is. The other, the other denomination that actually is, is a denomination openly. Okay. But, but sort of wasn't is, is the vineyard churches headed by John Wimber. Okay. And that's an ax. There's a, there's an axis here that people, I think, neglect to their peril in American history which is the South into Southern California access. A lot of things from 1849 onward exist because of that access, the way that it's easy to travel that way and the way that people have. And and the connection, for instance, in Vineyard's history early on between Dallas Theological Seminary, obviously in Dallas, Texas, and Southern California is enormous. And what, what's going to happen on that axis is that you get this melding that is the whole sort of trick. And I don't mean that derogatorily, but just sort of there. This is this is the way it operates. This is the, the nutshell of it, is that you get very, very old-fashioned doctrinal convictions proclaimed in endlessly creative ways. I'm not really saying that in an evaluative way, like it's good, it's bad, 
I'm just saying it is creative, okay? Such that it's success in basically any area of the country. So part of the way to gauge the success of what was called in this very denominationally nonspecific way, the Jesus movement in music, in multimedia production, in the in the style in which churches occurred, and in a theological way that I'll uh, mention in a second. But one way to gauge how important all this is for the history of Christianity in America is that probably no matter where you live, no matter where you live, even if you live in some county in Wisconsin where like 60% of you are nominally Lutheran, but I would be willing to bet if you live in the Northwest or you live in Florida or you live in New Hampshire, the biggest church in your county is probably a church that is aping John Wimber and Chuck Smith and several other figures who are sort of lesser lights. They're not aping you. They're not aping early, earlier 20th century mainline Protestantism, whose style is, is mostly gone. If you meet like a heterosexual male pastor in the Methodist church, maybe you could see something like what a church was like in the 1950s, but probably not, right? Probably the the church more people go to than anyone else in your county, whether you live in LA County or you live in Crawford County, Pennsylvania, probably the biggest church is a non-denom church. And if it's not, it looks like one. The numbers thing is what we'll talk about with the with church growth theory, but the impact of the Jesus movement trying to propagate a fairly old school version of evangelicalism, that's a post-World War II word mostly, but propagating fairly old, fairly clear doctrinal convictions, most of which are already recognizable in the self-proclaimed fundamentalists earlier in the century, through very creative means, endlessly adaptive, changing culturally, changing so that it can get into new parts of culture, that's something that really comes out of the Jesus movement. And if it weren't for that, Honestly, I suspect that a lot of our history would have gotten to what we identify as like 2023 America a lot faster. Right. Because this movement has been a Christian influence. It has been a Christian influence. Yeah. Almost everybody, right? Yeah. Uh, And and the thing you have to ask yourself is, okay, all right, I you know, I don't like this. And something that's very recognizable, although this is sort of indigenous to certainly by the 1960s and 70s. It's indigenous to large parts of Christianity in Southern California, as well as the American South, okay, especially sort of like the the Plains South or the Southwest part of the South, your Oklahomas, your Texases, your New Mexicos, is that it is charismatic. Mm-hmm. It might be Pentecostal. It It's more than likely, more likely than not, that it's some kind of charismatic. That's explicit in the vineyard churches. But it's it's important to say that whether you're talking today about Bethel Church in Redding, California, opposite, you know, totally opposite end of California, but Bethel Church or Hillsong in Australia does this. So those are your those are your really big musical sources. Whatever you're talking about, yes, it's a Christian influence. And the numbers game here will explain when we talk about church growth theory. But the thing that it that it also is, is that it is a charismaticizing influence on everything else so that the baseline for American Christianity has moved from mainline, you know, maybe not explicitly renouncing the authority of the Bible, preaching generalized Christian convictions, 
you know, think about the way that that the parson in a Western movie is represented. That's sort of just your baseline set of convictions to the point where charismaticism and language that is sometimes verges on new age type mantras about life, which is, I think, one of your suspicions about Danny Gokey is like, what is it? What does he mean breakthrough? Right. Mm -hmm. And is faith a measure of how much I believe that I'm going to be successful in the real estate business? You know, these kinds of questions, right? And charismaticism has its own answer to those kinds of questions that usually involves the increase of faith rather than the acceptance of affliction. That is going to spread through the Jesus movement over time. That's a lot slower. Okay. So in 1982, you're not looking at, okay, it's non-denom. So it's, it's sort of Baptist, but it's also kind of, it's probably charismatic in some ways, or they're open to it. By 2022, yeah, that might be a valid assumption about that biggest church in your county or about, you know, okay, this, you know, it says it's the Willow Church. Okay. Well, at the Willow Church, do they, do they kind of have female pastors like most charismatic churches do? Uh, yeah, they do. Right. What do they expect to happen during the worship songs? Well, they kind of expect that's how you get in touch with the Holy Spirit, right? Those sorts of realities come out of the original DNA of the Jesus movement, which is going to be more open to things like miracles and mm -hmm. direct intervention of the Holy Spirit and prophecy and stuff like that. That takes longer but, to filter. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be more open to it than your average Lutheran. That's for sure. Right. Oh, like, no like question. We're going, to, we're going to be completely uh, baffled by it. And, and the trouble that I continue to have with it uh, is when it proves itself to be piously authentic. So, so what I mean by that is not that I've seen, you know, the miracle or whatever, but in a conversation with somebody, um, I find out that while they, I, I can see all these like flaws in their biblical theory of reality their life with Christ is one of peace and certainty. It's a walk in which they trust in his word daily and feed on it. And they are content to grow. And I would that I just found that amongst us Lutherans a bit more, right? Like like that heart would serve us well with what we do know, um, as opposed to what we tend to have is more of a despair, right? That, that we have yeah. all the right answers, but they're not working yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that th there's a, there's a tenor question here and, and I've pondered this reality is that very often when, so this is an inside baseball moment. So if you're not Lutheran, I mean, feel free to skip it, but if you want some insight on us, that's hey, fine. They, they knew how to find us. They know who we are. Yeah. Come on. Is, <laughs> is that what, what you often find in confessional Lutheranism is that a guy who generally has more intelligence about other human beings and is more outgoing, just has a better personality. Okay. Just easier to be around, easier to get along with, easier to talk to is that that guy has, is, is going to be much more open to something that is far more common in, Ang in Anglo American origin, let's say Christianity which is that the the pastor's personality is not determined by the set of duties that he has, and then he just focuses on those duties. Because most Anglo-American forms of Christianity either are indigenous to being in competition with other groups, or they have adapted to it, right, in the case of, say, Presbyterians. And therefore, 
the pastor's personality is much less of this sort of like state church official like personality where you're an expert and you teach people the right stuff and then they believe the right stuff, but rather that you are there not only to teach people the truth. I, I, I think you'd be very uncharitable to say that any Christian minister is not there to teach people the truth. I mean, if he's actually a Christian minister, that's, that's what he does. Right. But that you have to be a certain kind of a person to get people to do that when they don't have to do other things, right? When they don't have to be there with you because it's not a captive market, it's not a state church, you need to like be interesting, you know, you need to be (laughs) clear, you need to be personable, right? And then often when our Lutheran guys pick up on that personality aspect, it's like they can't hold it alongside the doctrine stuff and they just drop the doctrine stuff, Hmm. right? You're supposed to keep them together in the sense that a lot of things about personality are very much 1 Corinthians 9 things, right? I make many fewer jokes, especially the kinds of jokes I grew up making in front of a Midwestern audience than I would at home. It's fine, right? You just adapt to the people you're dealing with. This is a matter of adapting to the general personality people have in America. And part of that, what's identified as friendliness or what you can disdain if you want to as like, they're too outgoing or they're too loud or something. Adaptation to that involves actually handling yourself so that you are comprehensible and not off-putting and not weird and whatever. And a lot of times, our guys don't think about that at all. That's probably far more common, right? Or they think about everything in terms of sort of a a service model. So the people are going to yell at them and then they'll just deal with it and move on. Rather than something that I think is actually wise in the United States, which is adapting yourself to actually sounding like you know what you're talking about and like you're actually in charge of something worthwhile, which is very often, that's, that's a big difference you will find be- between Lutheran ministers and lots of other supposedly, you know, they're also supposedly Protestant. Are we Protestant? Leave that question aside. But other Protestant ministers is that we don't sort of sound like leaders. We sound like we're still in a service role. And I I get you're a servant of God. I get obviously I I get that. But what I mean <laughs> is like you are leading the church. We tend not to act like we are. Okay. And I do think that that affects that affects us deeply so that when we get a guy who figures out that this is actually a way to lead people, you know, from the United States, when you're up in front of them, that guy tends to jettison all of the Lutheran stuff. Okay. Because it tends to be something that our guys pick up on who are highly intelligent about people and maybe a little less book smart. Okay. Just, these are just observations, but I think that part of our difficulty and part of our internal struggle is that it's like, we don't really know how to be in America without either rejecting everything about America. We talked about that with the question of rights language. It's like, we just don't even understand what everyone else is talking about. When we do grasp some of what they're doing, like maybe if your personality wasn't like weird and off-putting immediately, people would want to come to your church, you know, like, Hey, I don't know, you know? Uh, that, that sounds like a denial of the doctrine of election to me. Yeah, I, I know. Exactly. <laughs> I know. Me, of all people, deny the doctrine of election. That's, That's right. very clear. Yeah, right. 
you know, it, then, then it's like, it, then we're like, okay, well, I'll just get rid of all my other stuff then. Like, I'll just, I'll just be an appealing guy. You know, I'm not going to read so books can anymore. I, can I talk to this a little bit though? Because yeah, it, is, it. it is your, your, your notion that the, that there are pastors and people in the Missouri Synod, but elsewhere as well, who recognize that, uh, you know, what they were handed was on some level, you know, lacking in the Holy Spirit. Uh, in need of reformation, um, certainly you know yeah, totally. uh, in the Babylonian captivity. Totally, right? yeah. And I so mean, they I... begin to work on it. Yeah. Why do some decide that as they're unleashing their congregation from shackles yeah. through the scriptures, that that means abandoning their heritage and I, becoming I, another thing? Right. That's I, that's a really important question. Yeah. But, I I don't I don't grasp it. There was a a a pastor's son who is now a pastor who, you know, when you're in seminary, you know that you preach these weird sermons to the other guys in your class, you know. And uh did you do that? I did that. Me? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't did, remember what I did. Did you have to you had, yeah? So so okay, so we, we had to preach to other guys in our class. Watch people's videos and then like, we had to watch each other on TV. It was okay. It was we didn't so have to, Okay. Good. We were we were live and it was fine. And I had jettisoned notes by that time and pastor's son, Lutheran school goes to Concordia. Obviously I'm not going to name him if he's listening. I think he probably remembers this. It was shocking to me. He goes, you talk about Jesus like you know him. If, if you don't know Jesus, but I do, something is really wrong. Right. And I knew, I knew what he meant. Like, it's like, you know, uh, it's, it's John, you know, it's Jonathan, Jonathan played soccer. Jonathan lives in Illinois. I know the kind of Honda he drives. Cause I saw it in his driveway, you know, like, you know him. Right. And that, that he was not accustomed to that. So that was very powerful. And, and I've, ne- I've never it, forgotten it. You know, it is because like, on the one hand, you could almost come right back at him and say, well, have you made a decision for Jesus yet? <laughs> well, I and, didn't, and like I, I, mean, I didn't even know what to say. Like, right. Smoke coming out of the ears. Yeah. The, this is kind of the thing I, I've been on this in my, in the back of my head. So let's see if I can, I can bring it forward. It really hovers around uh formula Concord two and the introduction uh, it's on the human will. And, and we make a claim that we're going to say a whole bunch of stuff, but we're only talking about a very specific time, which is before conversion. And we take a lot of what that says and we apply that across the board to the way we approach the will in uh in uh, christian life you know post-conversion life um and so you know the, the idea that we're gonna that i would stand up and i've done this i've done this and, and i know we do we say you know you can't make a decision for jesus you know but by my own reason or strength i cannot come to jesus okay yeah but like this morning when i woke up i had to choose as a christian to read my bible or not to pray or not and you know you're right at the end of the day God did it. I didn't. All glory be to God. It's grace alone. Right? We believe this, but it's not as though I, I, I'm not a human, right? I mean, we can get into the whole cart horse stuff, right? Where I'm not pulling alongside God. I'm in the cart. He's pulling me, but I'm in the cart, right? And in the cart, what do I do? I wake up, I go, I'm going to live like I know who Jesus is today because I'll make a decision today. And like, this is literally in our catechism. Like, this is like the, the third question in on baptism. <laughs> and yet somehow... You know, you, you run into the situation where this guy's like, I don't even know who Jesus is in a sense. Yeah. Like he kind of said that to you, right? It's weird. He said, he said, I don't, he, he was, he was saying, I don't know how to talk about him like that. Yeah. Which, wow. 
which is strange to me because if you have a doctrine of the means of grace that says that Jesus Christ is physically present in your church, we, we really, we really grasped, you know, and, and maybe (laughs) we don't have to grasp quite, quite in the way that we do, but we really grasp that, that, that governs the way that we behave in worship. Totally fine. Great. I think liturgical worship should just be called normal worship. Okay. Doesn't have to be liturgical. It's not about dressing up. It's, it's normal. We're, behaving like Jesus is physically present. If that's true, then I should feel perfectly free to talk about him as, as if he, I actually know him. And and that was part, I mean, for a lot of people, especially, you know, you said this is a Christian influence, right? And then I talked about charismaticism, but part of the reason that it is an actually Christian influence in a good way is because it enabled people who had grown up largely as Americans had in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in mainline Protestant denominations without the ability for very clear reasons. I mean, they they had reasons not to be able to talk about Jesus as if they know him. Now, suddenly, here's a movement, here are churches, here are people who enable you to talk about Jesus Christ as if he is alive and and you know him and he is your savior. And and that's very powerful for people, right? And in a way, it's very beautiful. I'm I'm saying that Lutherans really have no, they have no clear reason not to talk about Jesus in that way, right? Yeah, to the level where it's the the entire picture has to, to me, call us to ask what's wrong with us, which as you've suggested before, and I'm totally with you, you know, we have, we have high-handed, stiff-necked, send ourselves out of the order of creation in spite of all of our best interests and that that's really blown back on us hard. Um, but we also have managed to squelch the inspiration of the Holy spirit in our midst with regard to whatever word of God we have left. Yeah. As you, as you say, we're not inspired by the Bible. That's yes, weird. Right. That's weird. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because the Holy spirit is because he comes through the word. I mean, like all of this is like just basic Lutheranism. Holy Spirit comes through the word, right? Okay. If I have the word, then I am receiving a fresh God's spirit as I open that word. And I am being changed day by day, every day. And, you know, if that's not true, then nothing else is true. But the spirit is not like far off or accessed in a merely mechanical way. He has both access through the word and dwells in us, as does the whole Holy Trinity. And that should actually affect the kind of human being that you are. I mean, if it doesn't, I don't, you know, you're you've not, got a problem. You're not listening. Yeah, you're not listening. <laughs> you know, you've got a problem. I What I think is interesting is that of the two prongs that we're talking about here today, we didn't really appropriate that one or or when we did it was like wildly aberrant so there were there were charismatics in the lutheran church most prominently in other forms of lutheranism than than the missouri synod or the wisconsin synod but but we had we had our own we had renewal in missouri, we had our own sure. yeah. yeah we appropriated much more obviously and extensively what it what came to be called church growth theory yeah so this is the other Southern California portion here, and it's it's very specific, is that already in the 50s, right after Fuller Seminary had been founded, named after a radio evangelist named Charles Fuller from 
Huntington Beach maybe is where he was. I can't remember exactly. His old-fashioned revival hour was the biggest radio program followed by the Lutheran Hour under Walter Meyer. A seminary was founded right after the Second World War, named in his honor, and, and meant to be a replacement for the various denominational seminaries that by the mid-40s were fairly uniformly liberal. And because that was even more true on the on the West Coast than anywhere else, they desperately felt the need of one. So the professors belonged still at that time to various mainline denominations. They were men of evangelical conviction, but they belonged to mainline denominations. But it would be sort of like Dallas Theological Seminary has always been, independently an evangelical institution. So they do that. And right away, they're training, they're training overseas missionaries. And one man who's fundamental to that study of world missions is Donald McGavran, who had experience being, I believe, a Christian church or Disciples of Christ missionary in India. And he comes up with a theory that's going to be really important for the way that churches operate in the U.S., from the 70s onward called the homogeneous unit principle, which was in India specifically that people would come into the church with other people who were already like them. And in India, that's that's especially shaped by their caste, right? So whatever they were within the social structure determined by Hinduism is the way that they would form churches. That was That was his insight. That was used to train missionaries out of Fuller in the 50s and 60s. And a pastor in the Los Angeles area named Win Arn got hold of this idea. And he said, this is actually really useful, you know, because people don't come to my church just with nobody else. They probably get invited by their friend and their friend is probably a lot like them. So if their friend used to be a hippie, they, they probably used to be a hippie, you know, or if, you know, somebody brings other people from their family or they bring their neighbors who are a lot like them because they live in a similar sized house and probably work in similar sectors and stuff like that. So he says, can you teach this to us? And McGavern initially says, no way. This is not about, you know, America is an individualistic place, right? This is, this is not going to work in America. Arne eventually convinces him that this could actually be really helpful. And so winter I'm sorry, Ralph Peters and Donald McGavran are then going to start holding seminars in Southern California for Winarn and area pastors. And eventually this gets bigger and bigger. And eventually it turns into something that's going to be aped by a lot of evangelical seminaries, which is a doctor of ministry program. Somebody already pastoring can go through and learn how to grow his church. Because the thing that is observed something that somebody like a Chuck Smith figured out on his own, but something that increasingly will just be taught at evangelical seminaries and, and non-denominational evangelical seminaries. And, and then later at, at lots of kinds of places that pastors are trained, various ways that they're trained is a set of principles that will be known in America as church growth theory. And from America will then be exported worldwide, even even to places where, like in South Korea, which still has the world's largest congregation, which is you know more than 100,000 people, Yoido, full gospel church, it'll be exported there and kind of you know reappropriated, even though some of these things had been figured out already. 
usually under the guise of leadership. I think in America, under under the terminology, the the especially business terminology of leadership, but and, and it doesn't. Mission, but yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Mission as well. So if we're going to talk business terminology, you know they they appropriate the business language of mission and treat it as if it's the biblical language of mission, and then they do similar uh, kind of overestimation of the capacity of the leader. I'm not in any way going to suggest that pastors should not all be leaders. You just talked about this earlier and you know, I had a, a note. I mean, they should not be lawyers, but field marshals. But but that said, what the church growth movement does is is it overweights leadership as opposed to say orthodoxy. Well, yeah. And I, <laughs> you know? Right, right. And I, and I think that what's really crucial here is that it gets out of the hands of some specific influence because Donald McGavran, by training, was an anthropologist. So his observations are not really about the pastoral ministry, much about less- human social development. Yeah, they're, they're observations about how human beings behave. And and as far as they go, therefore, <laughs> it, you know, it's sort of like, it's sort of like saying, you know, Biblically speaking, you're in a nation, whether you want to be or not, because you're yeah. descended from and related to people. Like whether you acknowledge that or not, like you, you are. In the same way, you can believe that you're wildly individualistic, but you know you're not. Like you, you just, it's not, it's not really possible. It's only possible on certain scales. Like yeah, no, you're, you're an individual you're in your life. family. You're going to go with like, what gets me yeah. here is, is I'm thinking about this though. Yeah. So especially as you point out that, you know, he's an anthropologist, this isn't theology. He's just talking about social movements. And so anybody can do this. What he basically gave seminars on is how to start a cult, you know, how to manipulate people based upon their shared interests in order <laughs> well, to join your group and pay you to do it. Yeah. Like that, that is, and, and that, that is the ecclesiology we're working with, I think has to be reckoned with, frankly, okay. it okay. really is real. It's one reason, one reason that things like what he was saying were already being done before he was saying them to Americans, being done by Americans and being done in other places. And there had been what we would now call a megachurch, which is depending on your definition, but usually a thousand or more in attendance on a given Sunday. In the Missouri Synod, it is over 200. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Yeah. I'm, I'm at a, I'm at a quasi mega church right now. Right. Um, Two pastors, man. Yeah, that's right. Is the, the reason that is the case is because what McGavern was putting forth were, were anthropological principles about human behavior, which you can use or misuse however you like. And it's also the reason that this wasn't a totally new thing. It, it wasn't, I mean, and there are Musically speaking, there are analogs to what happened with the Jesus movement earlier in American history. The difference here is the capacity. And I think part of this is built off both the cachet and just the capacities of people concentrated in Southern California at the time to put forth their idea of what something should be. What gets added to that in the case of church growth theory is that it gets amalgamated with American management theory. And for that, Win Arn is is actually more important than McGavran, despite the fact that very few people even know his name. But what he was able to do is bring together in his thinking sort of corporate America's varying versions over time of how to manage groups of human beings with some idea, and you'll notice this if you read church growth books, 
it's usually an allegorization of something from the Old Testament most often about how to deal with people, right? So the reason that you want to have consultants in is because Moses talked to Jethro, or the reason that you want to have clear plans is because Nehemiah laid out clear plans. What's interesting about that is that it it comes to make things like church growth theory and management thinking seem biblical when in their origins, no one was claiming any such thing. (laughs) It's so strange to me because on the one hand, like we've talked about this. I know you agree with me that the, the wisdom of the Bible is found in the stories and over and over again in living the lives of these these Christians that came before and their words and their relationship with, with Jesus, with our God, mm-hmm. uh, that this, this unearths something to us, right? That, that, that's where the wisdom is. And so you might indeed be reading Nehemiah and be like in a situation in life where you've got to stand firm and, and, and hold your ground. You're not building a wall maybe, but you're building a wall, right? So the, the, the analogies aren't, aren't wrong. But then when you go and you're like, well, you know, Moses talked to Jethro, therefore, you know, you must, uh, we have to, let's bring in some pagans, ask what they think, do what they say. Like you really have gone a long way from, you know, it is wise if you're overwhelmed to ask somebody who is wise, what to do. Like that's what Moses does. Yeah, with right. You, you right. should do that. Right. No, I, I, I think that it's, it's childish. It's like pedantic. They, 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 the way they line it up so narrowly is what I'm saying. But yeah. one, I mean, once you understand that that's what has been done, that you that you theologize something, and and therefore harden what was before an insight or in that situation the better piece of wisdom or something, right? That you then turn it into a a principle. And the reason that your mm-hmm. church is not growing is that you didn't follow these principles. Yeah. That that explains why American Christianity goes through essentially the same process in the past 50 years, especially the past 30 years, that American retail has also gone through. That is that in person, it's down. Now we're not we're not as down as as brick and mortar stores are, but we're we're suffering from a lot of the same things. Like People are getting fed online. They're getting ideas about their life. They're making radical life decisions because of stuff that they see online. They're not getting that from the preaching on Sunday, which may or may not even be relevant in the same way that, you know, certain things that I order. I mean, I even, it's depressing, but, you know, think, think about, translate this to a doctrinal problem. I go to an LL Bean store for their original boot called the main hunting shoe, you know, the 20 year old like girl doesn't know she doesn't even know what this is i'm like you guys make these trust me this is the first thing you ever made she's like i i don't she like basically doesn't believe me i have to go like find a physical catalog and show it to her and then she's like oh okay i guess we'll order it for you (laughs) you know a lot of churches are like that where you're providing something you're providing something that i could probably get better through the internet or you're just not even providing me with the things i can get through the internet so people are getting their stuff from you know online locations they don't need your retail outlet that may explain why you know no new church has opened in your town in 25 years or more at the same time okay so online is growing in person is shrinking when you are in person what are you actually providing and 
maybe we're providing, you know, a half empty grocery store or something. We're not providing stuff for your whole life, all the stuff that you need. Like you can't come here and and get that. And so we really shouldn't be surprised by it. But what what that was related by the church growth movement movement too was okay, well, the answer is to build a system that is going to be more immune to shocks than the mom and pop store, right? Better able to handle problems than your average, you know, 80 people on a Sunday with one pastor who is the only employee of the church for, you know, tax purposes. We're going to get instead a giant, we're going to get a big box location. And sometimes they're in a former big box store, but they definitely ape a lot of, and I'm not just speaking like stylistically about worship. I'm talking about how they make decisions. They're they're often highly corporatized, almost like a parody of corporate life where people are hired and fired, you know, fairly ruthlessly in alignment with the leader's vision. I mean, you referred to it as a cult thing, but it's also, it's, it's, it's a fair portion of management thinking. They will also follow management thought wherever that leads. So if Harvard Business Review is obsessed with emotional intelligence for the last decade, so is the guy who's the pastor at that biggest church, right? And so is the guy that trained him to be a pastor when he interned somewhere else and learned the hard lessons about firing people or something. So you end up with a completely different vision of church because you're now saying that corporate America's vision of life is required for the church. And that's not just an organizational assertion, right? Because the way that you're organized both reflects and then also produces the kinds of things that you do and say. So if I'm organized like corporate America, and BLM comes along in 2020, what am I supposed to say? Well, I should say the things corporate America says. So, you know, we stand in solidarity with capital B, you know, black people suffering from systemic racism. We have to say that. That's what corporate America does. The thing that this is going to do is it consolidates Christianity in the same way that retail has been consolidated. So instead of having, you know, 10 churches that are all fairly small, and therefore open to a much wider array of theological influences, you've got maybe two with multiple staff whose pastors, especially their lead pastor or senior pastor, is a much more media savvy sort of corporate-like figure. And I, I don't mean this in terms of, you know, you should have like a horrible personality, like it doesn't matter and you know if you ever have manners or good public speaking skills that means that you're selling out i didn't this is not some sort of like you're a sellout man you know critique it's more like watch what happens when this guy or you have shaped your whole church along the way that corporate america has shaped itself at any given time and watch what happens to the doctrine the doctrine is going to go the way that your culture is pointing, right? Doctrine doesn't just magically overrule the in-person culture of your congregation or of your church body. And if that culture is aimed at and aping something else that is changing rapidly or can with the spirit of the times, then obviously you're going to do the same thing. I mean, obviously, right? Like the, you're set up to do that. 
<laughs> right? You're set up to be successful in these kind of corporate terms that have been outlined as church growth theory hardened into church growth, you know, best practices, do these 10 things, do these five things, whatever. You're you're perfectly well set up to move with the spirit of the times. Where I'm at with all of this uh, remains sort of like somewhere between we must be aware of the charismatic line. And I'm not sure Lutherans have the Holy Spirit. And like somewhere between that, Adam, really, like the, there is a need for individual Christians, pastors, congregations, regardless of denominations across the board to recognize uh, some of the bitterness that we've carried from old arguments hasn't served any of us well. That spirits of dissension, duplexity, malice, fear, and criticism are not the Holy Spirit active among us. That the spirit of the Holy Spirit brings uh, trust, charity, prudence, and 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 growth. Not not numerically necessarily, but like you said, in understanding. So with that, I see in in the whole picture that we have, and we've talked about Rome plenty on this show too, not so mm-hmm. much this week, but the the Catholic Church on Earth, little C. I mean, hey baby, we're not small, and. And there's a lot of us left. There's a lot of nonsense. And I think, I think, Adam, that that some of us who carry the flag Lutheran are quite positioned to reform people all around us if we'll talk to them rather than shoot at them. And that doesn't mean that necessarily the Calvary Chapel down the street from me suddenly has the Lord's Supper. But maybe. Maybe that guy starts, you know, looking in this and that direction for doctrines because of our conversations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 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 to believe that that's possible amongst those of us who still believe the Bible's true, right? Because your local pastor group, of course, eight out of ten don't believe the Bible's true anymore. So this is about discovering who are the real preachers in your area, who are the real Christians in your area. I think your pro-life community events are a big place to find those things. But for us, for us Missouri St. Lutherans here, the love of many has grown cold. And and that's a that's a wake up call. You you said it earlier, like you know we just think too highly of ourselves. I'm totally with you on that. I I I I wish I could shout it loudly enough. Hey, all Lutherans, you realize we're not going to be here in 50 years. Like like Lutheranism is going to die. <laughs> the Book of Concord might be on a shelf somewhere, and someone else will find it and come to faith through it, but not because of what we did. And it's because we've put our emphasis on all the wrong syllables through this thing. Like you said, what material principle, formal principle? What is that language? Word of God, right? Yeah. Word of God. Yeah. I mean, relying on that strategy where you hope somebody pulls it off the shelf. I mean, just a little, just a little story is that um, I would I I did a conference recently where I met one of my wife's pastors from when she was growing up, and he was talking about her in confirmation class and blah blah blah, and, you know, and significantly, and he didn't say this. She she has told me that she's like the only person from any of the years of confirmation that she was, you know, around who goes to church mm-hmm. as far as she knows, mm-hmm. not a, not a surprising story, very normal, right. Mm-hmm. Missouri yeah. centered upbringing in that way. And she was talking about the people who were influential in her congregation in, in her actually going to church and, and believing this and being interested. And then, you know, how that people that were important to that in college and everything. 
And uh, <laughs> I mean, I was being facetious, but these are the odds you're running is that uh, I was like, I'm just a pure product of the Holy Ghost. I I came from books into a church and then from the Bible into a better church. <laughs> that was That was it. The odds are so long. Don't make that your evangelism strategy. You know? People just don't behave that way generally, right? I'm a, yeah. I don't. I don't think anyone's going to find it on the shelf. I. Th- th- this is my point again that we are, whatever noise we think we're making, it's not noise, and we're largely ignored. There are definitely. You ask like, where does our demographic bottom hit? I, I definitely believe that we have Lutheran congregations with families and Christian groups in them, who as congregations will will survive will it last that's not what i'm talking about but i'm talking about the denominational thing right that there's like this we kind of think of ourselves as like the reformation from luther and it just never stopped and we're still here and no no i think that's been gone for a while now and and what we got is an american business system that waves a flag that says reformation on it but isn't very reforming of anything really and which financially is tied to a dollar system that is already corporately hijacked for a number of reasons, as you pointed out, Black Lives Matter, blah, blah, and, and uh, you know, inoculations. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, what's left but these congregations. And, and then, well, that is the church. So that's the hope, right? But then as congregations, where do we go? Do we just go back to, hey, let's build another denomination in a, in, in a post-denominational moment right what and, and that's an open question there I yeah mean, i mean uh post-denominational like post-christian whether you accept the validity of those things or not and because they're historical and, and social observations they have truth to them and they have falsehood to them hmm. um depending on what you're using them for and and how you're defining them i don't say that to just be extra squishy i say that because when people hear that something is post-Christian or more broadly, or I'm sorry, less broadly, post-denominational, what that sometimes assumes is that social movements have their own weight. And to my mind, one of the biggest lessons about the growth of evangelicalism or the growth of non-denominational Christianity from what they were in say 1946, is that the effort expended in building things is going to be out of all proportion to your own sense of its likelihood of actually working. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1946, yeah. you know, the Missouri Synod is you know talking about itself as a sleeping giant or or reportedly Billy Graham is certainly in 1946 Walter A Meyer matters a lot more than Billy Graham to vastly more Americans as a preacher that that momentum was essentially squandered i mean the lutheran hour as far as its reach within mainstream american christianity not mainline but mainstream what are most people doing or what are most people aware of that's as big as it gets, not just for the Lutheran hour, but maybe for the Missouri Synod. So something for Lutherans to ponder is not, okay, how great is your theology? Good. That's that's good that it's the best. Okay. But how do you actually propagate that theology? 
Because if you're not really thinking about that, then it is very possible and, and you have to reckon with the reality that you're not so different from other sorts of Christianity that you can just survive miraculously. There will be a time when there will be no more people in a given Episcopal parish that probably has a nice endowment and can run financially without human beings. There will be a time when there are no more people who are United Methodists. They will either have moved to some other form of Wesleyanism or some other form of Christianity, or they just won't exist. But you can't contravene the word of God and end up with that working out. The thing that will happen to you at that point is that you will just openly, as mainline denominations are now doing, you will just openly seek a, a, an obviously different religion to propagate. You won't be on the fence anymore, right? Fences like this in times of clear choice always prove to be illusory, right? They, they just crumble fairly quickly. So if you're you're on the fence about does daily life have to be impacted by the word of God or are we just doing sort of a pure, we're just, we're just going to receive Holy Communion at church and we're going to do the divine service and that's not going to touch anything else that goes on in our lives and it's not going to touch the way that I talk to my husband or about my husband to my friends in our group chat, then okay, fine. But this is going to go away then for sure. Because if the challenges to Christianity, particularly in our time, or I would actually assert for the past several hundred years, in terms of the revolt against nature and the revolt against authority, if those are at all true, then we're not going to make it if we just ignore those things. And I think something that was very productive about the Jesus movement is that they didn't ignore the difficulties that Christianity was having. They talked to people about why instead of doing drugs, they should go to church or whatever the actual difficulties were. That has run its own course and some of it has gone to seed very much, I think, in the growth of charismaticism. But at least at that time, late 60s, early 70s, they were facing certain things head on with a fairly coherent message. That's a, that's a way to actually ensure some kind of survival in your own time and maybe for years to come. The way to definitely ensure that you die <laughs> is, to, is to ignore the things going on right in front of you. The only thing guaranteed to get out of this century, assuming our Lord tarries, is the Bible. Do not associate with those given to change. Their calamity comes suddenly, and who knows what ruin it can bring. Proverbs 24 21 and 22. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. 
But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.